Success Stories is presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every week my writing and podcasts put the financial world in context with a focus on the issues that matter. As a member of The Constant Investor, you can also access our exclusive Facebook group where I'll answer your questions directly. Join us today. It's just a dollar for the first month. Now here's Catherine Robson with a success story. Yolanti Ford is used to big jobs. She's the head of remuneration and benefits at Telstra, which means that she's responsible for 40,000 pay rises, promotions and employee feedback sessions each year. She's also a trustee director of Telstra's superannuation fund, which has over 100,000 members and $18 billion of assets under management. A native South African, Yolandi's genesis of high performance comes from an understanding that life isn't always fair, but disappointing experiences can actually be the door to new opportunities. I look after the remuneration of 40,000 people, but um, it's a little bit broader than that as well in that we look after benefits as well, so superannuation or international benefits. So some of our international countries have healthcare and other benefits as well. Um, I look after the global uh, mobility function, which is um, helps us move people around between the different countries that we operate in. Um, we look after the executive remuneration and reporting, and so that also entails all of our equity plans across um, across the world, really. Remuneration is one of those areas that's, you know, controversial and it feels like certainly from an employer's perspective, you can never keep everyone happy all the time. What are the sort of mechanisms that work well in terms of keeping a big workforce engaged and and as much as possible happy and motivated? You can't just use remuneration. Um, uh, I always say that um, everybody has a very personal perspective on remuneration and what what they do is worth. Um, So what we try and do is establish a framework that is fair and equitable, that the rules are well known to everybody. We have clear processes and policies and therefore uh, a level of transparency with employees so that they feel um, that um, they are being treated treated well. I think it's interesting because remuneration is, um, it has a inverse uh, proportion. So when people feel that they're getting less than that they should or that a bonus pays out less than they expected, that has an inverse proportion than them actually getting something extra. So um, maintaining that equity and fairness is for us a very important factor. So how did you end up in this role? I started off in a small consulting firm in South Africa uh, that was affiliated with um, Mercer um, and ended up moving to London, working for them. And I worked in Dublin as well. So my whole career has been in remuneration and benefits. So because I have a legal background and gravitated to the equity plan. We have a joke in my team, basically, nobody ever chooses a career in remuneration and benefits. It seems a little bit obscure. But um, there's actually a lot of roads that lead there because it's a a discipline that requires people that are quite numerate, um, but also uh, being able to express some of those technical terms in really plain um, 
English or make it understandable to all levels. And then there's the psychology element of it too. So I have in my team psychologists, accountants, a maths specialist, and then there's quite a bit of legal elements in it too, especially when you start looking at all of the contracts and other elements of the employee relationship. So yeah, it's an interesting field. And I then moved to Australia with my husband and worked for PwC, who then um, seconded me into a role at Telstra while my predecessor came to the end of his contract and moved back to the States. And sometimes the try before you buy worked out and I ended up in the role. And I've been there now for four and a half years. And growing up in South Africa for yourself, being a business person, was that something that you always had a vision of? Oh, no. My plan was to be a lawyer. Um, I was very passionate about the law. um, And I had a bit of an incident just after I finished university that kind of changed my perspective a bit. And I... um, What sort of incident? Something you want to talk about or not so much? um, It's an... Well, as I was thinking about coming to this, I, I, I recall the experience and I think I feel that it was quite forming in in how I've approached my career since. I had a very clear plan and objective of this by this date and finish my articles by then and then go... It was a very clear plan, at least. I was selected in a for a, a law firm, a very prestigious law firm in South Africa, which was also on my list. <laughs> and uh, they had a very interesting selection process. They picked some of the top 10 students of our university, which was based in Pretoria, ran the process and I was notified that I got the one article position that they had and uh, two days later was informed, no, actually they can't give it to me anymore because um, one of the other candidates' father, who was a very senior barrister, had... Jumped up and down and complained. Exactly. And I was just so shocked, is the one word, but just deeply, um, it it kind of really changed my perspective of how fairness in the workplace would work. And it also kind of made me realise I have to fight those battles for myself. I can't wait for somebody to do it for me. Um, And I always wanted to travel and you know, the South African ran to other currencies didn't make it very easy as well as having a large student loan. So I started looking for opportunities that would involve um, global companies with global opportunities and ended up working for uh, this consulting firm that had um, a secondment program with the UK. So it completely changed my perspective and, you know, I haven't looked back. And your parents, were they the sort of people that fostered that leadership in you? What sort of upbringing did you have? My parents were quite relaxed, but very much about owning what you do and doing it well. And I didn't ever get the sense that my parents were pushing me. Um, It always felt more that I was the one that wanted to do do more. Um, But I think they they were quite open-minded, well-read, uh, had connections in different parts of different communities in South Africa at the time. Growing up in um, during apartheid, there was lots of insular uh, communities, so I, you know, that really benefited me uh, tremendously. And um, 
uh, English is my second language. So you... So Afrikaans is your first language? Yes. Uh, and so in an Afrikaans community, there was a lot of people that really struggled with English. But my parents with lots of English friends meant that I also... Um, had that advantage, um, which helped a lot when you moved globally. <laughs> and for your kids, have you tried to create a connection with South Africa for them? Um, absolutely. We've uh, we've actually just recently spent some time there in um, April and uh, my parents have passed away, but my brother is still there. So my son was playing with his um, cousin and it was quite funny because my son can't speak Afrikaans. we taught him a few words. Neither can my husband, who's Australian. And uh, my brother's son couldn't speak English very well, but, you know, between four and a half and six, that doesn't really matter. And uh, one morning my husband came in and my um, my nephew was saying something, and which my husband couldn't understand. But my son interpreted for him and told him, oh, he just wants some more breakfast, Daddy. <laughs> so I think it's really good that um, at that level, cross-cultural, cross-language, you know, it's not a barrier. And what's it like living away from your birthplace? Is it hard to live somewhere that's different? It is. I think there's always, you know, uh, you that community, close friends that you don't see often. Um, uh, you know, with my parents passed away, that that tug is not not so strong, but it was in the beginning when I, I moved overseas for the first time. But there's also been the excitement of the new um, new places. So the two balance each other out, but you have bad days and good days. I know when we've talked in the past, you've talked about some of those benefits of living in different places and new perspectives, but it does come at the cost in terms of that security of building up retirement assets, for example, that that po- international portability of retirement assets is not something that's well developed um, for business people mainly. Um you're a director of uh, Telstra's superannuation fund. What are your thoughts on on you know building retirement savings? Well, it definitely puts you at a disadvantage. Um, you know, I, I only really started um, contributing to super in 2008 when I moved here, and a lot of the benefits programs that you participate in in the rest of the world is um, is either linked and you expire when you move, so that it does create uh, an issue. So my advice is to most people is to start early and contribute more early on because then you get the benefit of the the compounding of the investment which you don't get at the end. So I really have to look from a personal perspective how I can um, enhance my uh, retirement savings because super will definitely not be enough for me. Um, Particularly given where the contribution caps are likely to go. I mean, they're pretty low relative to what um, you'd want to be able to fund a retirement income. And I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, well, I'll do it in my 30s or my 40s when I have more money and I have a bigger package. But even then you can't go – it's still going to be quite limited. So you're better off contributing that extra pair of shoes or something more in your early 20s um, and that also will help for women a lot when they take time out to have their children to not fall so far behind. Because that's something that uh, I'm really concerned about is the fact that women um, in retirement age makes up such a large proportion of our um, uh, people who live b- below the poverty line. Being a trustee director at 
Um, Telstra Super also seems like a big job. So there's about 100,000 members of the fund and it's about $16 billion strong. Um, hopefully that's right. Well, I think uh, we had an update the other day and it's actually closer to $18 billion, but There yes. you go. <laughs> What's $2 billion between friends? That's interesting because you assume that it's just a fund for employees, but clearly there's a big difference between 40,000 current employees and 100,000 members. And it strikes me that that the fund is looking to, you know, be a big standalone fund beyond just its own employee pool. Is that right? The intention of Telstra Super is always to um, remain very closely aligned with the interest of the employer. But that um, 100,000 members are made up of uh, current employees, past employees and family of both current and past employees. And the size of the um, membership is due to, you know, people actually staying with the fund when they move to a different employer or or, um, in retirement. So um, part of our strategy is really to ensure that we have the products available for people going into retirement and also to have that um, retention of... um, ex-employees and their families. And one of the key strategies is also really to look at um, people in their 20s that move where they don't really think about super and, you know, they go to a new employer and then bring over their super and not really evaluating which one is the better one. So um, it's really about educating members about the fund and what they can deliver and making it easier for them to, to make that assessment. In terms of investing for yourself, superannuation, as you say, is a key plank, you know, given your understanding of how powerful it can be. What other things have you done personally to bolster your financial position, whether that's investing in your career or relationships or, or financial investments? What are things that have worked well for you? Uh, I'd, I'd say the single most important thing is education, continuing education, Um uh, it's it always gives a return. Um, it, it's interesting because in, in South Africa it is a big investment. We did not have the um, HEC support that you have in in Australia. Um, it also is quite expensive, and you know, from a family that weren't that well off, it meant I had a very large student loan when I finished um, And where do you university. get the student loans from? Are they from a commercial bank or they're, is it...? They're mostly from commercial banks. So wow. the interest rates were killing killing you and partly working overseas helped repay that. So it's, it's really crippling for a lot of countries where there is no... Um, support from the government on education. Because there's that brain drain after people finish. Absolutely. Especially if it's a a lower currency country like South Africa where at least you could get that. uh, Otherwise people end up paying for their student loans for a very long time. So um, it is an investment um, if you go and get it for free. But I think every country in the world should be looking at how do we get more people educated at a more cost-effective way. I know we can't all do it for free um, and there should be some balance to it, but it is the most important thing. Um, The second thing is, as most Australians, I'm probably a little bit obsessed by property, um, uh, but I'm also conscious of uh, the risks that there is. We've been in a very 
sustained growth market, but I lived in South Africa when property prices completely fell and people lost millions. Um, and so you, you've got to be aware of that as a, uh, if it's an undiversified strategy, it's quite risky. In terms of managing your career, are there things that you would advise people um, that that have worked for you, strategies that have worked for you in terms of helping you achieve what you want to be as productive as you can be? What are the things that have worked for you that you would recommend to others? So I think there's two parts what I, of uh, what I would recommend. I think the one is how you plan your career and 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 strategy. And I I think I see it a lot with people asking me. So what is my next step? And what can I? It's it's really about what you make of it. With the the quicker you can learn to not expect somebody to tap you on the shoulder every time something an opportunity comes up, the better it would be for you. If you kind of take your destiny in your own hand and look for opportunities and, you know, frankly, I didn't particularly do it with a career point of view, but my husband and I love travel. We love living and experiencing new countries. So my career strategy was looking for opportunities in different countries and it's been very beneficial um, over over some time. But it's finding what you're passionate about is and looking for it and kind of being open-minded and not afraid of change. Are there any other techniques that you use from a physical and mental health perspective, given that you work sort of in that area in terms of benefits, you work with some psychologists at, you know, on a day-to-day basis, anything that you do that you feel like is essential to, to maintaining physical and mental health? Well, I always think I should be doing more. Um, I probably don't do enough exercise. I would like to do more. Um, uh, I'm a big advocate of um, incidental exercise. So walk when you can, um, take the stairs when you can, and um, trying to weave that into the day because I don't have a formal (laughs) exercise program. Um, uh, Yeah, and doing the things that you you love, um, making time for that and trying to be present in the moment uh, with whether it's with my son Jackson for that hour um, to be completely there. Um, oh, and we've, we've been doing, his school has this great resilience program and um, they've, uh, uh, he's in grade one, so talking about being grateful and gratitude and um, a, a whole bunch of other things. So we have this uh, new ritual every night, which is that we lie down on his bed before he goes to bed and we both say thank you for three things or that we're either grateful for or nice things that happened during the day. And it's a, it's, it's a fun exercise for me too. <laughs> Success Stories was presented by theconstantinvestor.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Broke Free.